Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Is Revelation a book of prophecy? Is it a book of history? Or is it a book of allegory so that we can just kind of attach to it any kind of meaning that we want? Uh, That's a very good question. Those are good questions. And how you interpret Revelation chapter 12 tells you a lot about what you believe about the book of Revelation. If you don't get chapter 12 right, then you'll have difficulty dealing with other things that are written here. Now, we, of course, believe that the uh, book of Revelation is no different from any other uh, book in the Bible. It is to be interpreted literally unless there is something in the text that tells us otherwise. Now, that tells us then that the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. Uh, It does contain some history, and there's some things that are in the book of Revelation that we have absolutely no way to explain unless we look at this as a book of prophecy, because they don't relate to any events that have happened in past history. But the beginning of chapter 12 does, in fact, start with some history. And it is important that we understand what this history is and who the Scriptures are talking about, because, again, if we miss this, then we have difficulty interpreting the rest of the book. And we're now entering into the second half of Revelation. Chapter 11 closed out with a synopsis of the end. It was a brief overview of things that are coming and how the book will will close out. And now we settle down to some of the details to look at the whole picture that we find in Revelation. And this evening we're looking at the first six verses of this 12th chapter. And we're discussing the battered woman and her son. So stand with me please as we read God's word. Revelation chapter 12, I want to start reading with verse number 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath the place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for the time we have to gather again this evening. We thank you, Lord, for our faithful church members who are here tonight. And we pray for all of those who are just starting pioneer clubs this evening, that you would uh, give them the grace and the knowledge that they need to teach the children there. And then, Lord, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, Brother Rex Furman and his wife, Andrea, we just pray, Lord, that you might be with them in their loss, uh, such a terrible tragedy. But, Lord, give them the strength that they need, and we thank you so much for the work that they do in helping to get the gospel out to other places in the world. Bless our service tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John begins verse number 1 with, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. That word wonder, as we discussed last week, means a sign. It means a symbol of something else. 
Now, we do, in fact, believe in a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, but when the text tells us that we have a symbol, then that's the way that we're supposed to interpret it. Now, woman, or John, rather, sees a woman here that is clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet. She has a crown on her head with 12 stars, but this is not a literal woman. This is a sign, it's a symbol, so it's a picture that stands for something else. Now, as a very quick review, what we began with last week was the identity of the woman. And there is much conjecture about who this woman is. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church has some ideas. Uh, They will grasp at any straw to try and find the Virgin Mary in just about any text that's in the Scripture. And they're always looking for some pretense in order that they might worship Mary. And so they believe that this woman is Mary. And to some that would make sense because the text does tell us that there is a child here that's to be delivered and there's also the pains of childbearing. Then we also find that there's the exaltation of the woman. And uh, that also fits perfectly with Roman Catholic ideas because they like nothing better than to exalt Mary and give her a name that is to be worshipped. They want her to be a redeemer with Christ. And then they even call her that and even go so far as to say that Mary gave her permission for Christ to be crucified. And in fact, her suffering in some ways figures into helping us to be saved. Then they also like the idea of what it says here, that she's clothed with the sun and has the crown of stars and the moon that is under her feet because that gives them the reason to call Mary the queen of heaven. But the truth of the matter is, Mary is not exalted to a position that's higher than any other saint is in heaven. She's not to be worshipped. The Roman Catholic idea is wrong when they call this woman Mary. Then we also discussed the idea that the woman represents the church. And covenant theology is fond of using that interpretation. But not only them, because there are some people like the venerable John Gill, who is a great Bible scholar, who did believe that this is the church. Now, John Gill wasn't pre-millinary, and so that was part of his problem. But he believed that this was the church. But I think that that's wrong because we need to understand that the child here to be delivered is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're talking here about is the history of Israel and the great difficulty that it was in order to bring Christ into the world through the Jewish people. And if the church had been in mind here and the church is the one that's giving birth, then Christ would become the child of the church when in fact Christ is the founder and he's the husband of the church. So we have to get the idea straight here. We have to understand exactly who this woman is in order for us to understand what follows. Now, tonight, I want to go on, secondly, to discuss the infliction of her pain. In verse number 2, we read, And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. Now, the woman stands for Israel. And in verse number 2, we have a long historic look at the great difficulty that it was to bring Christ into the world. Thousands of years of human history are comprehended in that one short verse. And there was indeed great, great trouble for Israel because they brought Jesus into the world. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the crown of struggle. It says that the woman has a crown of 12 stars. And those 12 stars are representative of the tribes of Israel. Now, there's only one place in Scripture where we find this particular type of reference. And if you remember, it was the dream that Joseph had. And this is where the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down before him. 
The stars were his brothers. And they did, in fact, bow down before Joseph when he became second to Pharaoh in command of Egypt. The stars are very significant when we consider what's taking place here. But so is this crown. Uh, The word for crown here is the word stephanos. Now, in other places of Revelation, the word crown is also used, like in Revelation 19.12, which speaks of the crowns that are on the head of Jesus. And the word crown there is where we get our word diadem. It's the word that means a regal or a royal crown. But Stephanus is a different type of crown. This is a crown like a wreath, one that's won during athletic games. And so this is a crown that's given because of conflict and because of struggle. And that's certainly true when we consider the history of Israel. There was much pain and suffering. There was death that came to Israel. Great opposition over the coming of Christ. Now I'm going to talk about this in just a few minutes. But that struggle for the coming of Christ began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The centuries-long conflict uh, was stated in Genesis chapter 3 verse number 15. And that was the contention between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Jesus alluded to those two seeds when he told the Jews, those Pharisees, that they were of their father, the devil. And they would not trust him because the seed of the serpent can never become the seed of God. God has his elect. Uh, Christ is the primary seed of the women and all all those that are chosen in Christ, those are also a part of that seed. But there's a struggle that began in the Garden of Eden And it won't be finished until Satan is cast down forever in the fires of hell. But there's also a history of that struggle. And we can trace it through the scriptures. We can look and see what Satan was doing and how he was obstinately fighting against God to keep the Messiah from coming into the world. And as you look at the story, and if you think of it purely in human terms, it's very easy to see how Christ might not have come. It was so difficult that if God had not intervened, if God had not been there every step of the way to infallibly bring Jesus Christ into the world, then we never would have had a Messiah. And then after he did come, there was much uh, opposition. There were many, many attempts to uh, stop him from accomplishing God's sovereign purpose. Now, what I want to do tonight in this next part is to trace a little bit of that history and just give you some of the events that we find in the Old Testament that show the opposition of Satan. So I've put this under this next heading, and that's the consistency of Satan. Notice verse 3. It says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. Now there, the scripture says that we have another sign. Here is another symbol. It's a great red dragon. Now next week, when we get into the Star Wars messages, we'll begin to talk about the the symbolism here. But this great red dragon is Satan. And Satan started out long ago with his opposition to God. First, as we know, he fell from heaven, and he wasn't content just to be kicked out of heaven. He wouldn't leave things alone, but instead what he did, he struck back at God and he started out by tempting Adam to sin. And from that point, he has continually lashed out against God. He's very consistent in this struggle. And he was determined that he would keep Jesus from coming into the world. So we're going to look at a few highlights of the struggle. Now you can make a note of these, and if you want to read about them individually a little bit later, I I would encourage you to take the time to do that. But soon after Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden, 
And some say probably within about 30 years we have the first incident. And this is the attempt against Abel. In Genesis 4, verse number 1, Cain was born. Now, I want you to notice the peculiarity of this language concerning him. In Genesis 4, 1, it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Eve said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And the indication there is that Eve fought that Cain was the one who was the fulfillment of that prophecy that's given in Genesis 3.15. The name Cain means possession, and it means a prized possession, something to be prized above everything else. And so perhaps that thought had been drilled into Cain's mind since he was a child. And, and when Abel came along and God began to favor Abel, uh, Cain became exceedingly angry about that. And that may have led, led or partially led to the fact that he killed Abel. But how wrong that Eve was about the identity of Cain. Now there's an interesting verse that we have in the New Testament that speaks about Cain and where he came from and his true identity. This is in 1 John chapter 3. John says, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. So Abel was the godly one, but we notice there that Cain was from the wicked one. That means that he was of the seed of the devil. And so it appears before the second generation of mankind that Satan had already thwarted God's purpose of bringing a redeemer into the world. But God is always in control. And God knew exactly what would happen. And so Adam had another son, and his name was Seth. Now, of course, Adam had many other sons, but according to Luke chapter 3, verse number 38, Seth was in the line of of the Messiah. And so it was preserved. The line was preserved. Number two is the attempt against the godly seed. Now, this is really one of the most fascinating and debated topics that you'll find in all of the Bible. This is in Genesis chapter 6, and it's one of those scriptures that you might want to read a little bit later on. But here's where we find this idea that prior to the flood, that there were demons that there were evil angels that came to earth and they cohabited with women, they had children, and they raised an evil hybrid race of demon men that were called giants. Now, I find that story highly mythical, highly fanciful, even though there are very, very many good, good Orthodox men who take that interpretation. But what I believe about it is that what Satan tried to do was to tempt the godly line of Seth to intermarry with heathen women, and thus he would be able to destroy those godly men. But we see in the story just a little bit later that God raised up Noah, and Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He remained faithful to the Lord, and so when the flood came, Noah was saved from the flood. Noah was in the line of Christ, and then one of his sons, Shem, was also in that line. And so, again, we see that the godly line is preserved. Number three is the attempt against Jacob. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 27. We know that Abraham was chosen by God. We have that great story of Abraham where when he was an idolater, that God called him out, God chose him, chose him and promised that he would make of him a great nation. 
Now Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac was the one who was the son of promise. He is the one that was in the line of the Messiah. Isaac had two children, two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, most of you probably know that story, so I'm not going to go into details about Esau and Jacob, but Jacob was a conniver. His name means supplanter. And what he was was a little sneak, I guess you'd call him that. And he cheated his brother Esau out of the birthright. But it so happens that Jacob was the one that God chose. And we find that in the places of Scripture very clearly in Romans chapter 9. But Jacob was the one that God chose. And when he cheated Esau out of the birthright, Esau said, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill my brother because of what he did. We find this in Genesis 27, verse 41. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will slay my brother Jacob. Now we don't have to think very hard to see what would happen if Jacob had been killed. If Jacob is killed, we don't have the 12 tribes of Israel. If we don't have the 12 tribes of Israel, we certainly don't have Jesus Christ and that lineage of his. But what God did was to change Esau's heart toward Jacob so that he didn't actually kill him. And I want to remind you as we go through each of these that that Satan is behind all of these attempts. But every time, God is there and he thwarts Satan's evil purposes. But Satan is relentless. He's consistent. He doesn't stop. He keeps on trying and trying and trying. He was ultimately determined that he was going to stop Christ from coming. So we go down through history and we see more incidents. Number four is the attempt against the children of Israel. Now here is where uh, Satan painted with a much broader brush and he tried to destroy not just an individual, but he tried to destroy the the whole nation of Israel over an extended period of time. And this is when Jacob and his children went to live in Egypt and they were under the protection of Joseph. After Joseph died, there was another pharaoh, another dynasty that came to rule over Egypt and they didn't have any kind of allegiances or alliances with the children of Israel. And so they took Jacob's descendants and they put them into slavery. But under slavery, God's people prospered. And in fact, they prospered so much and the people became so numerous... That Pharaoh was afraid that they were going to overrun the Egyptians and the Egyptians would finally lose their identity. And so he came up with a plan. And his plan was that he would have all of the male babies killed. And if all the male babies were killed, Satan would have his day. Because in that, now Pharaoh had no idea what was going on, but Satan certainly did. Because in that, he would be able to kill the one person who would be in the line of the Messiah. Now, the result of that story is that Moses was saved, and he became Israel's deliverer. Now, he wasn't in the line of Christ, but he was the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, and thereby the whole nation of Israel was preserved. Now, I want to skip over quite a bit of Israel's history uh, concerning the kings. And during that time, there were many, many attempts to corrupt the line of David, and there were times when the line of the kings was just held together by the thinnest of threads. But every time, God preserved so there'd be that one child who would be sure to live and be in the line of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to mention one of the incidents during the time of the kings. And this was the attempt against Joash. Joash was the son of King Ahaziah. Ahaziah was killed by Jehu. 
And when Ahaziah was killed, his mother, Athaliah, came to rule on the throne of Judah. Now, she was a very wicked woman, and you could probably imagine why. And that's because she was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So she took over the throne from King Ahaziah. And when she did, she killed all of the sons of Ahaziah so that she would have no rivals. Now, these were kids that were not overjoyed when it came time to go to Grandma's house. Um, Grandma is supposed to be sweet and loving, and it should be a joy to go to Grandma's house. But it wasn't that way, because this grandmother killed all of her grandchildren. Who do you think was behind that? Well, Satan, of course. He's behind it all. But God knows all, and God knew from eternity past this would happen. And so he allowed that there was one son of Ahaziah who wasn't killed. Now, thank the Lord that Joash had an aunt that wasn't like his grandma, and her actions are recorded in 2 Kings 11, verse 2. And here it says, But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons which were slain. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And so that attempt against Joash failed. And for six years, they held or they they hid this child away so that he couldn't be found. And for six years, the history, or I should say the the fake, you might call it, or the, the hope of the entire nation of Israel and the hope of the entire world for a Messiah to come rested on the shoulders of one little boy that was protected by God. Now, that's remarkable, I think, how God knows all of these things and he stops the plans against his Messiah in every case. Now, the next incident is uh, one of the greatest stories, I think, that we find in the Bible. In fact, this is one, uh, this particular incident is still celebrated by the Jews today. Number six is the attempt at extermination. And we have one book of the Bible that deals specifically with this, and it's the book of Esther. Now, it's difficult to for me to condense the whole story of Esther into just a few short comments, but I'm going to try to do that. And this was the attempt of King Ahasuerus to kill the whole nation of the Jews. And this wasn't the attempt like Pharaoh did to slowly kill them and slow the, the progress or the, the, uh, uh, the, the babies would be born and Israel would be preserved in that way. But here was an attempt to kill all of the people of Israel at one time. Not just stopping the procreation in Israel, but to stop the nation completely. And so this is different. This is an attempt to destroy every man, woman, and child in Israel. Now, to be fair to Ahasuerus, I guess, we could say that it wasn't his idea. Uh, He didn't have any particular designs against the Jews. But he did have an evil advisor. And his name was Haman, a very wicked man. And it so happens that Haman was an Agagite. And that may not mean very much to you, but if you go back and you look in history, you'll find that the Agagites were a group of people that were supposed to have been destroyed by Saul. But Saul disobeyed God, and he didn't kill the king of Agag. And because he didn't, that almost came back to bite the entire nation all these many years later. So Haman, this wicked man named Haman, devised an evil plot to kill all of the Jews. But little did he know that... Queen Esther, who was Ahasuerus' favorite wife, was a Jew. And he didn't know that his bitterest enemy, Mordecai, was her uncle. Now, the end of that story is that 
Haman's plot failed against the Jews, and then Haman was hanged on a gallows that he had made for Mordecai. And that's where we get the source of the saying, hang him high as Haman. comes right from there. And that's also where the Jews uh, got the Feast of Purim. They still celebrate that today. And that's when King Ahasuerus gave the command that the Jews could defend themselves. And so, thus the nation was saved. You find that in the book of Esther. You can read all that in just a few minutes in the book of Esther. And uh, interestingly enough, Esther is the only book in the Bible where the name God is not even mentioned at all. But God's providence is written all over the book of Esther because God preserved his people. Now, do you see how all that fits into Revelation? Israel pained to give birth to Christ. But let's go on because this story goes on into the New Testament as well. We could spend some time talking about the Babylonian captivity and things that happened there. But we're going to move into the New Testament now. And this is when Jesus finally did come into the world. Number seven is the attempt at Jesus' birth. And this is one of the most familiar stories that we have in the Bible because we bring this up almost every Christmas time. And this was when wicked King Herod was visited by the wise men. Now, remember the story that the wise men came and they were following a star. And they came to Herod and they said, we've been following this star and that star is a sign to us that a great king has been born in Israel. Well, Herod didn't want any rivals. And so he said to the wise men, you go and you find where this child is. And when you find him, you come back and give me word because I want to come and worship him also. Well, the wise men did find Jesus, but they were warned by God that King Herod had no such designs on worshiping Christ, but rather that if he found out the location of the child, that he would kill him. And so the wise men traveled a different way. They didn't go back to Jerusalem to see King Herod. They just went home a different way. Well, what that did was to raise the ire of King Herod. And because of that, we find one of the most dastardly crimes in all of the history of the world. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 2. When Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. So Herod didn't know of a way that he would be able to find Jesus. So in one fell swoop, he had all the children two years old and under killed. Now, many people believe that what Herod did was to draw a line, draw a radius, a circle around Jerusalem of about 7 to 10 miles. And all the children that were in the radius of that circle, Herod had them killed. Now, who do you think would tell him to do that? Doesn't the Bible say this about Satan, that he is a murderer from the beginning? Satan is consistent. He stops at nothing, and he tried to kill the Christ. Now, in our text verses, in the end of verse 4, it says, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, Satan was not able to do that then, but that doesn't mean that he stopped. And we could go on through numerous examples of the ministry of Christ and how that Satan tried to kill him then. Uh, For instance, in his own hometown of Nazareth, 
Uh, the people wanted to take Jesus and throw him off of a cliff. Satan tempted him to even kill himself by throwing himself off of the temple. When Jesus taught and he healed, there were people that hated him so much that they would have taken him right then and they would have killed him. And then there's the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in great agony, he sweat drops of blood. And there Jesus prayed for strength from the Heavenly Father that he might not die there in the garden. But he would be able to go to the cross where he would die for our sins. Now that was Satan's doing. Because Satan knew the necessity of the cross. If he could kill Christ before the time then we wouldn't be talking about redemption tonight. We wouldn't talk about salvation. We wouldn't speak about reclaiming the earth. We wouldn't talk about the lifting of the curse. Because if Jesus had not gone to the cross, if he had died any other death but the death of the cross, then we would not have salvation. We wouldn't even be here in church tonight. So you have all of those attempts. But then you have this last one. And that is the attempt at Jesus' death. Now, it might seem like I'm backing up just a little bit on what I said, that if Satan knew that he could defeat Christ before the cross, and killing him before the cross was what he desired to do, does that mean that Satan had nothing to do with the cross? Well, I don't really think so. Because uh, it was apparent that Christ would go to the cross, and uh, there were all those attempts to kill him before he did, and then Satan couldn't stop it. So I think that Satan figured out that he would use the cross to his best advantage. Now, the cross couldn't be stopped because God had already predetermined before the world ever began that this is exactly what Christ would do. Peter explains that in Acts chapter 2. He says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The apostles... Uh, said the very same thing. When they prayed after they'd been beaten and told that they couldn't preach any longer in the name of Jesus, they said this, The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So it was an impossibility to stop the cross. Christ was not misunderstood. Christ was not accidentally crucified. This was in the plan of God. But all the while, those who perpetrated the murder of Jesus Christ did it of their own will. Now, Satan couldn't stop it, and so then he began to turn his attention to the tomb. And the idea there is to keep him dead. Wrap him up, keep him in the tomb, don't let him get out, and then... We don't have a resurrection. And how angry that Satan must have been that with all of his best attempts, with all of the efforts that he's put into this, Christ is finally killed, Christ is finally in the tomb, and yet with all of his demons, with all the muscle that he could get together, he could not stop Christ from coming out of that tomb. But Satan's not finished yet. He's still consistent. And so if he can't keep Christ from coming out of the tomb, his next best thing is to totally discredit the entire idea of a resurrection. You know, I really don't think that Satan thought that he could keep Christ in the tomb. I don't really think that he thought that. But he did know this, that he could uh, spread a lot of propaganda about it. I mean, he he could put it into people's minds that the resurrection was a myth, that the body was stolen and all of those things. And we can read about that in the Word of God. 
Now, here's the thing. The story has always been the same. Israel travailed to bring forth Christ. And Satan persecuted God's people in every conceivable way. But it was all worth it. It was all worth it to go through that because God blessed Israel. He brought Jesus Christ through Israel. And God has promised them that he will restore them into a kingdom. David's throne is going to be reestablished. And Christ will have dominion then, not over one country, not over a few countries that are around the Mediterranean, but his kingdom will have a scope that is worldwide. When Christ establishes that millennial kingdom, the Jews will be gathered once again, and it will all be worth it. And so the woman pained to bring forth the child, but bring forth that child she did. Verse number 5 says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So we have the identity of the woman, we have the infliction of her pain, and we're going to go just a little bit longer, and we're going to talk about the incarnation of her son. Now, verse number 5 is a remarkable verse, because when you talk about overviews and you talk about a synopsis of things, here is the ultimate. Because this verse skips over the perfect life of Christ. It skips over the ordeal of the cross. It skips over three days that are in the tomb. It skips the resurrection. It skips now 2,000 years of human history. All of that's comprehended in what takes place in that verse. But one thing that it doesn't skip, it doesn't skip the ascension. Now, when we talk about Christ, most of the time, we are concerned about talking about his birth. And you hear lots of sermons, of course, about the life of Christ and many, many more sermons about the death of Christ. But it seems like the ascension sort of gets lost in all of that and we really don't talk too much about the ascension of Christ. But the ascension is extremely important because we need to talk about the present ministry of Christ. Christ has a present ministry. Right now, he is interceding for us in heaven. So that every time that we pray, every time that we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's what the Word of God says. He's an intercessor for us. And you know why we need it? Because there's also an accuser there. Satan hasn't quit. And we'll talk about it when we uh, get into the Star Wars messages again. We'll talk about that accuser who is still right there in heaven today. And that might surprise you. He's in heaven today accusing the people of God. So it's very important that we have the intercessor, and that's because of the ascension. So the woman delivered the child, and he was God incarnate. And that incarnation made it possible that we might have a sacrifice for sins. And it made it possible that Christ would be able to impute the perfect obedience of his life to us for our salvation. Christ came and submitted himself to God's law, kept it all perfectly. Galatians says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the incarnation is the allowance of the gospel. Paul said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, very quickly, what does the incarnation do for us? Let me give you three promises that come out of the incarnation. Number one is the promise of a redeemer. Now, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
You know the scripture well. I, I referred to it just a few moments ago. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's what we call the proto-evangelium, which literally means the first gospel. That's the first preaching of the gospel. God cursed the earth, but he promised that the curse would be lifted through the incarnation of Christ, who was the seed of the woman. And so in the Garden of Eden, we see God's grace. The gospel is a gospel of grace, and that's because man cannot redeem himself. God said, I'm going to bring salvation to man. And so we find that theme of redemption that runs all the way through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And every example that I've given you of Satan's attempts against the Son of God and of man's complicity in those attempts and eagerness to try to help Satan to do that, that is all testimony to the grace of God and his determination to redeem. There is no cause for which God should redeem us. It's only his mercy, his love, and his grace that we are. So Satan couldn't kill the Redeemer, and so thus he couldn't kill salvation. The only thing that he can do is, according to Genesis 3.15, is to inflict a little bit of pain for a short amount of time, and then Christ is going to crush the serpent. Now, the second thing that we have is the promise of a ruler. The incarnation says that there will be a ruler who will sit on the throne of David forever. Verse 5 says that he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, if it had not been for Christ, the Davidic line would have been totally lost. There is no Jew today that can trace his history back to King David. No one knows if they're in the line of King David, and so thus no one has a right to the throne. But with the birth of Christ, there is no Jew that needs to know his birthright. And that's because the throne is established forever in Christ. Now, interestingly enough, we may not know where the 12 tribes of Israel are. We may not be able to identify them, but God knows exactly where every one of them is. And when he establishes the millennial kingdom, he'll call out 12,000. Just prior to that, he'll call out 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel who will become witnesses during the tribulation period. And then when that kingdom is established, these tribes of Israel go into that kingdom and they'll rule with Christ. Now, thirdly, we have the promise of a resurrection. The incarnation of Christ brought with it the promise of resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, and more fruit is going to follow. The dead will be raised incorruptible. And so the bodies of all the loved ones that we've had in this church, that we've laid in the graves, they're going to come out once again. Now, since I have been in Brian Baptist Church. I, I've seen Carlos Silva, Amerigo Heron, Willie Brown, Carla Lambertson, Dennis Prince, Evelyn French, Frank Tharp, Lorraine Campbell, Claude McGlade, and Matt Campbell all go into the grave. Those were dearly beloved people in Brian Baptist Church. But if I'm alive when Jesus comes, I'm going to see all of those people come out of their graves. And if I'm dead when Jesus comes back, I'll come out with them and we'll all go up together. So the incarnation of Christ made it possible that there would be a resurrection. He could arise from the grave, and therefore, I can arise from the grave too. That gives me hope. And the question is, do you have the same hope? Do you have the very same hope? This woman brought forth a man-child, and the man-child is my Savior. And friends, I hope that he's your Savior too.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what great stories we find throughout your word. How that you did everything to bring Jesus Christ into the world. Despite all the opposition, despite the hatred, despite the contempt that man showed for you. The complicity that we have to reject Christ And yet you are determined to save us from our sins. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came into this world. Bless as we sing tonight. Thank you for each one who's come out to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.